Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. There are several things that are really bad for fungal infections, and they are darkness, moistness, and the absolute worst is sweatiness. So if you wash your skin and then you keep it real dry, that's generally going to improve something that's fungal in nature. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. You may not know this, but I live in farm country, and one of my favorite sights are the beautiful blue fields of flax when they flower in the summer. High amounts of daily flaxseed are also one of the most common food recommendations I make to women working through heavy periods or hormone issues, skin problems, high cholesterol, or even as a quick option to move stagnant digestion. It's not always easy getting in multiple tablespoons of flax each day unless you have a really great source of flax. My favorite is from the Pizzi family in Manitoba, who've pioneered flax sourcing in the food, beverage, and pet food industry over the last few decades. Their flax is head and shoulders above any other flax I've used and tasted in my kitchen for a few unique reasons. First, they slice the whole seed so there is no waste and you get the nutrition from the entire plant in both their milled flaxseed and their flax milk. This gives it the freshest, fluffiest texture. Second, they remove any diseased and damaged seeds that don't fit their quality standards so the whole batch doesn't get that rancid smell or taste like some other flax. Third, they gently heat treat each batch for food safety and to give the flax a smooth, slightly roasted flavor. And finally, they care for their soil through crop rotation to grow healthy flax for years to come. Thank you for sponsoring today's episode, Manitoba Milling Flaxseed. You can find Manitoba Milled Flaxseed and Milk at some large retailers or get 25% off online using the code 25krista at Amazon or manitobaflax.com. For the most up-to-date links and discount codes for all products mentioned on the show, you can always go to kristabigler.com forward slash shop. Okay, today on The Less Stress Life, we have Dr. Chris Masterjohn, who is really, if you don't know Dr. Chris Masterjohn, he is sort of like the guy for vitamins and minerals. So he earned his nutritional sciences degree from the University of Connecticut in summer of 2012. For a couple of years, he's served as a postdoc research associate in comparative biosciences department of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. 
From August 2014 to 2016, he served as assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College, part of the City University of New York. And he decided to leave academia and pursue entrepreneurship in the fall of 2016. In 2017, he's been conducting independent research, consulting, working on products, collaborating or information or technology products and producing tons of free content to help people gain better health. His mission is to grapple with complex science and translate it into practical principles that each of us can use to better support our health, which I love that last line so much. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I had a professional crush on Chris's work when I first read his, which we're not talking a ton about today. There's a lot of health professionals that listen to this. And so he's got this lovely micronutrient cheat sheet. I mean, that any nerd would enjoy, but it kind of goes through. I actually have used it as a resource for a lot of things, but it goes through every nutrient and sources. And it's really clearly a labor of love. And it's been really awesome. So I've I've enjoyed him since then. And then Chris and I were both on an eczema summit recently, and he did a great job talking about nutrients related to skin issues. And so we want to chat about that. But first, we talked about your professional history a little bit. You gave us a nice little timeline in the bio. But let's talk about how you actually became a vitamins and minerals geek, because it's not like there's a lot of you around. So tell me about um, what happened and like why you decided to do exactly what you're doing and spread the information you're spreading. Yeah. Uh, going back into my teenage years, a big influence was the way that I saw my mom work through her own condition of fibromyalgia. She went on a quite long health journey through various alternative healing modalities. And I just saw her completely transform what was chronic pain that was keeping her and me up every night into a largely pain-free life. So I was probably like 14 or 15 when I really started getting interested in health and nutrition. But I wouldn't say I was a vitamins and minerals geek at that time at all, really. I experimented with a number of diets, the zone diet, then I became a vegetarian and then a vegan. And then while I was a vegan, I did the soy zone diet, which is a vegan zone diet. And that whole journey was not all it was cracked up to be. I thought that I'd get healthier while I was a vegan, while I was also saving the environment and the animals. And I actually got really unhealthy. So there were anxiety disorders that were kind of modest nuisances to me leading up to that point that really got to the point where they were interfering with my life, where I was like afraid to eat most of my food. I was just basically life was getting unlivable at that point. And I also went to the dentist and found that I needed two root canals and had over a dozen cavities. So Basically, my mental and physical health, especially my teeth and my anxiety or my control over my anxiety just basically fell apart while I was a vegan. And then I encountered the work of Weston Price. And Weston Price was a pioneer of nutritional anthropology who studied the traditional diets as they existed in parts of the world that were untouched by modern civilization. So hunter-gatherer tribes, traditional agriculturalists who had not industrialized uh, he basically traveled all over the world looking at these traditional diets and then found what happened to those people when they transitioned into what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce, white flour, white sugar, canned goods, syrups and jams and white rice, things like that, that were imported into these places. And basically, consistently, people went from very healthy in all aspects his book was called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. Basically, all the diseases that dominate modern society became common. And he was particularly interested in teeth because his background was dental research. And so he especially documented was how these people were 
basically free from tooth decay while they were eating their traditional diets even though most of them didn't really have dental hygiene practices. And then they just had rampant tooth decay when they were eating modern diets. And he emphasized the importance of nutrients and especially on fat-soluble vitamins in protecting against tooth decay. So my interest at this time is just that I want to fix my teeth. (laughs) That's why I started reading the book. But as I started implementing the principles that I learned from Weston Price around nutrient-dense animal foods, especially organ meats and shellfish, in addition to just regular animal foods like meat and eggs and dairy, as I started implementing these principles, I also saw my mental health just completely revolutionized. Like I just felt like a completely new person. My anxiety disorders basically just disappeared. And it was a complete surprise to me. I didn't expect that. I wasn't trying to do that. But I felt like my life had turned around so powerfully that I had to pay it forward. And so that was kind of like the key turning point in why I got interested in nutrition to the degree I am. And I guess in terms of like why I became a vitamins and minerals geek, You know, when I became vegan, I didn't really know much about vitamins and minerals. I just had this very vague sense that like vitamins were something that you got from vegetables and protein was something that you got from meat and calcium was something that you got from milk. And according to the vegan literature, we don't need as much protein as they say we do and we don't need as much calcium as they say we do. We'll just get all our vitamins from vegetables except B12. That was kind of like my very primitive understanding of nutrients. And so when I was understanding the value of nutrient-dense animal foods through the work of Weston Price, I was really thinking about vitamins and minerals in ways that I never had before. Like actually these shellfish are way higher in zinc and copper than you know any of the other foods I'm eating. Actually, this liver is way higher in vitamin A than any of the other foods that I'm eating. And so starting to think about why those foods were so important and kind of tease out what had happened to me and what I could learn from it to help other people is really what turned me into the vitamins and minerals geek that I am today. I love that you brought up Price's research because he and his friends were the first people I thought of when, when you mentioned your teeth. So, and I didn't know you were going there. So that's great. There's actually a episode around the time of this area. And I don't know exactly when, but it's a, a dentist where we talk quite a bit and he talks about dental stress. And I just think I actually like have a huge interest in dental stress and its relationship. I think what's going on in your mouth is a window to the inside of your body. So anyway, I just think it's cool that that's your story. I have a question. I think we could talk a lot about, it'd actually be a really fun conversation to talk about vegan to traditional diet transition. Was your digestive system challenged when you started to make those changes? Because that's not necessarily a super easy transition for someone to make, jump from vegan to traditional ancestral diet. I don't think so. I think my digestive system was challenged by being vegan. Mm, Okay. Uh, I actually had a lot of discomfort when I was a vegan, but I think that's just because I was eating plant foods that are more difficult to digest like most undigestible things are found in plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think probably I had an, an improvement in my microbiome that was just a complete accident when I shifted to more animal foods. I'm sure you were very intrigued by your mental health change. Did you conclude that there was some very specifics? If you would pull out, like, what do you think were the main changes? Do you think it was fat-soluble nutrients? I'm just trying to decide like, yeah, which, well, which components I could, I could, do you think I changed could... it the most? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I could spend an hour or two speculating, but I know our time is limited here. So what I'll say is I still don't know, and it's still kind of a mystery to me. And first of all, I'll say I didn't go into great 
detail here, but the degree of mental degeneration that I had at that point was pretty severe. And my memory is also very poor from that time period. I was vegan for about a year. And uh, I was talking to my mom about a year ago about this. And she told me that she brought me into the emergency room because I demanded it for panic attacks that I was having like six or seven times. And only through talking to her about it did I even remember like one example of that. But I still don't remember going in repeated times. So like I know two things. One is that vegetarianism and veganism are both consistently in the literature associated with an increased risk of psychiatric disorders, including anxiety, depression, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And yet, I think I'm very unique in the severity of my response to veganism. I think it's the majority of people do not develop mental disorders as a result of being vegetarian or vegan who choose to do that. Although, the little data that we have is that around 80% of people who go vegetarian or vegan go back. So vegetarians and vegans are also very self-selected. The people that are likely to do well with it are the people who stay on it long term. So who knows if you stop those 80% from going back to eating meat, who knows what would happen to their mental health. But I think it's very clear that very few people as a result of going vegan have the degree of mental harm that I suffered. So I think that I probably have a genetic defect in synthesizing something that is found in animal foods and is very rich in organ meats, mm -hmm. but is not found in plant foods and is not in any of the vitamin supplements that I was taking while I was vegan and that I just wasn't eating it when I was vegan and then all of a sudden I was eating lots of it when I was eating a Weston Price inspired diet mm. that was had a pound of buffalo liver every week and so on. So, I mean, and to this day, I always feel better when I'm eating organ meats than when I'm not, even though I don't particularly like organ meats and I honestly hate the taste of liver. Mm -hmm. I might go like every once in a while, I might go like six months or a year without eating liver because I just really don't like it. And nothing really bad happens to me, but I just clearly overwhelmingly feel better when I'm eating liver regularly. So I don't know what it is. I do know that my cholesterol has always run low and my cholesterol was extremely low when I was vegan. And I do seem to, you know, other experiences suggested to me that things that lower my cholesterol also cause neurological problems for me. So that's one possibility, but I haven't identified any genetic reason for my low cholesterol, but that would offer a pretty simple explanation because I actually have data on that and there is zero cholesterol in vegan diets and there is zero cholesterol in any vitamin supplements. Mm -hmm, so right. it, actually, it actually fits perfectly, but I'm not ready to single that out. I think it could be other things like lipoic acid or coenzyme A or something like that too. Yeah. For everyone who's listening, cholesterol is an animal-based piece. So when peanut butter says cholesterol-free, that's a laughing, that's a joke because there's no cholesterol in plants. Oh, that's like low-carb eggs. But to be fair, I've also seen cholesterol-free water. Oh my gosh. Give me a break. <laughs> anyway. Um, ugh, anyway. Uh, but cholesterol is like a backbone to hormone synthesis, essentially, or like I mean, there's a lot of pieces there. I mean, and there's people who make a living talking about the importance of fat in the brain. So anyway, that's a fun conversation to go down maybe another day. Mm. Uh, let's talk about 
you had a few times where you had some skin manifestations pop up. Tell us a little bit about that, because I know you're a self guinea pig a little bit. You've learned a lot Mm. through that experience (laughs) from what I gather. And so I believe each time you said, hey, I figured out that I relieved my skin rash from this thing. Will you tell us a little bit about those experiences? Yeah. So I have a recurring problem with what I call eczema. It generally is uh, alternates at, at this point between zero and one on a scale of zero to ten, I guess, and it, it you know occasionally flares up. But when it started, it just uh, voraciously took over my body, like from the tips of my fingers to my shoulders on both arms, down the left side of my torso, and down the tops of both my thighs. I tried all kinds of things. It took me a year to arrive at something that worked. And what ultimately worked was a probiotic called Primal Defense. It's made by Garden of Life. The current formula, it was reformulated after I used it. And now I believe Primal Defense Ultra is the original formulation that I had used. And the difference between Primal Defense Ultra and the regular Primal Defense is the Ultra contains Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a yeast, and the regular formula does not. It only contains soil bacteria. But anyway, within a couple weeks, it was 80% gone, and within a couple of months, it was completely gone. But then for a while, it would come back as little patches of dry, itchy skin on my wrist every once in a while. And then at some point, it, it shifted to coming back. Now it never comes back on my wrist. If it comes back now, it comes back on my fingers. What's it look like on your fingers? And what did it look like when it was kind of more systemic and the already helped? When it was at its worst, it was very red and it would pus too. Mm-hmm. Like when I would work out, it would just especially. If you want more detail, you'll have to ask more specific questions about what it looked like. No, that's fine. I was wondering if it was red and kind of angry, sort of systemically. Oh, it was all over. It was more dry, patchy, red, angry or not red. Sounds like it would be red. It was red and angry. It was more patchy, less dotty. Okay, got it. Not round circles either, right? No. Yeah. So it was kind of a gut thing, right? Because Espilardi really helps when we've got a little fungal imbalance or that. But then it moved to your fingers. What did it look like on your fingers? Was it like pustules or like little sacs? You said it still pops up a little bit on your fingers sometimes? Yeah, a little bit. I'm not sure. it. So like when it's just creeping up a little bit, it's not that angry and it's like patchy, red and dry. Mm-hmm. When did it if all start? It, so interestingly, it actually started like after I transitioned to a Weston Price inspired diet as all those other things that were much more severe resolved. That's when my skin flared up, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. Yeah. To go back to your point, I mean, maybe that does represent my digestive system having trouble adjusting to that diet. It was shifting a bit. But I didn't experience that as digestive upset. Yeah. Isn't that annoying when there's gut issues and there's no digestive? I really prefer when skin correlates with digestive stuff, so I don't have to say (laughs) this is a gut issue. But I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it is, right? But a lot of nutrient things are related to gut, right? Because that's how we're going to digest things properly, right? So anyway, I'll let you speak. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, Well, I just want to say that I don't actually think that I have one skin condition. I think I have like at least two and maybe three or four Mm -hmm. and that they tend to be comorbid. So I think it's very clear that when this gets really angry, it's fungal. Mm -hmm. And in fact, sometime years later, I also had a scalp 
condition that where my scalp was just scaling really, really bad. And as it got worse and worse, it started to cross the line into my forehead. And I noticed at that time that I had been kind of lax on my liver and cod liver oil intake. And my theory was that I was running deficient in vitamin A. So I just started getting 100,000 IU of vitamin A per day for a few weeks and then like leveled it off to 30,000 IU for a few months. And the condition almost completely disappeared in response to that. But so like two years ago, I developed what was probably for the first time in that entire history. Like the first event was probably 15 years ago almost, or maybe 13 or 14 years ago. And so two years ago, I developed a condition that was like voraciously taking over my body that was competitive with that first time. And I went in to see a dermatologist and we were both convinced it was a fungal infection mm -hmm. and it responded really well to terbinafine, which is an antifungal, mm -hmm. which also caused its own set of problems. It's a completely different story, but it worked very well against it. So the thing is like the reason that I believe it's not one thing. So there's like a component of it that I believe is more what I associate with classical eczema, which I associate with a defect in the skin barrier where the skin dries because the water is evaporating, mm -hmm. which makes the skin in turn more vulnerable to secondary problems such as infection by otherwise relatively normal components of the skin microbiome. Mm -hmm. And that component of it is very sensitive to soap because the entire purpose of soap is to wash away lipids in sink water. Mm -hmm. There's no other purpose to soap, right? And so if the skin barrier is based in lipids and if there's disruption to the lipids in your skin, they will wash out into the sink water when you wash your hands with soap or in the shower or whatever. Well, and of course and so, you would think this if you have eczema on your hand, especially because like this becomes the vein of your existence, like every day when you're trying to wash your hands. I just have to mention that like it becomes really well, obvious, yeah. right? I, I, yeah. I mean, I, and I'm pretty sure that the main reason that I develop eczema around my hands and never on my face is because I've literally never washed my face with soap in my entire life. And I've washed my hands with soap like probably maybe millions of times, if not certainly tens of thousands and probably tens or hundreds of thousands. I don't know. Anyway. And so in that classical eczema situation, I know that you could subtype the eczema much better than, or actually I can't subtype at all. So I know that you could, I'm sure critique what I'm calling classical eczema. But anyway, in that situation, washing the skin with soap will generally cause a much more severe defect in the skin barrier for about 90 minutes and in that 90-minute window, you're extremely vulnerable to bacteria seeping in, especially Staphylococcus aureus. Those bacteria on the surface of the skin are not harmful, but when they pass the skin barrier, that's when they really cause harm. And so then they drive inflammation and then that sort of aggravates everything. And so when my skin is like that, the best response is to avoid unnecessary use of soap and then use something like shea butter that is lipid-based to kind of coat the area that I washed with soap when I needed to. And I find that that to be very effective. By contrast, a fungal infection generally will respond very well to soap if you dry the skin off after, right? Ah, so like, great point because shoulders and above, there is a fungus that overgrows typically called malassezia. And so actually we think most of the time dandruffy type stuff or scaliness on a scalp is usually fungal. 
But like Mayo Clinic has used high doses of vitamin A to correct different skin stuff. So it helps repair it. Like we're not really sure. <laughs> I mean, oh, no, no, no. Wait, 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 wait a second. Vitamin A deficiency causes fungal infections. Oh, well, there we go. We should get into that. Like this is fun. Sorry, I interrupted you. I'll let you finish what you were saying, though. Oh, that's okay. So in the case of a fungal infection, there are several things that are really bad for fungal infections, and they are darkness, moistness, and the absolute worst is sweatiness. Mm -hmm. So if you wash your skin and then you keep it real dry, that's generally going to improve something that's fungal in nature, whereas that might be devastating to eczema that's driven just by a defect in the skin barrier. I just want to say like women, if they have scalp issues and they would wash their hair and then go to bed with it wet, it will drive it crazy. Like it needs to be dry. Yeah, that's why I emphasize that. So so like the worst thing is for it to be moist. But if you're going to compare moist with water compared to moist with sweat, the sweat is like orders of magnitude worse because sweat is full of buffers that facilitate microbial growth. So like I'm quite sure that if you took a cup of sweat, of human sweat, and you took a cup of water and you left them like on the table and just walked away for a couple of weeks, like I think you would get much more microbial growth in the sweat than you would get in the water. But that's also true like if you just took some of the components of sweat. Like I used well, to work waste, right? Not just waste, but minerals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to work in a laboratory and we had solutions of things just like phosphate buffers for our machines. And we had to like change them regularly because just visible microbial growth would start growing in the thing if you left it there for a week, whereas that would not happen with water. And it's because like phosphate buffers, for example, they facilitate microbial growth much better. So anyway, the thing that I know was fungal in origin that responded very well to antifungals was it started on the backs of my knees and I was doing CrossFit and Olympic lifting classes at the time. And on the backs of my knees, it was very much driven by the fact that I was sweating in the backs of my knees doing squats and things like that. And when it was start, like at first, it was just like a little bit of itchiness. And, you know, it was controllable. Like if you work out, you sweat and then you take a shower soon after and you dry off and you're like using performance underwear and stuff like that, like things are generally not going to get that bad. But if you have a fungal infection that is getting pretty bad, like it got to the point where even just like seconds of sweat would make it worse. (laughs) And so, you know, I got to the point where I couldn't work out anymore at that point. But it's like confusing because my eczema was also acting up in my fingers and that also became a point of fungal growth. So I think it's just that like, I just think it's actually multiple problems that are comorbid because if you have a tendency to fungal overgrowth and you also have a defect in the skin barrier, well, you know, what's easier to infect like healthy skin or a defective skin barrier, right? So I think it's just like, you know, if you just have eczema, it probably is infected by whatever's in your skin. But if you also have a fungal infection that's overgrowing, it will probably get infected by that too. And at some point, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between them because they're like facilitating each other. But what's interesting to me is you mentioned the Mayo Clinic using vitamin A. I didn't know that. but I only know that because I know a kid. (laughs) I know a kid who was on hyperdosis of vitamin A for skin issues. Well, I, I actually couldn't clear this without vitamin A. So 
the dermatologist gave me terbinafin, which is Lamisil, and the dose was too low, but she wouldn't give me a higher dose. Like I looked up the time that it takes to clear this stuff from the blood and it corresponded perfectly with the noticeable effect in the skin. Like I would take it and then after a little while, my skin would get dramatically better. And then right along the time course of when it should peak in my blood and when it should start getting cleared, my skin would get voraciously worse. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like what I was, was spending- time period. Do you remember? It's about a half a day. Mm. So I spent half the day with my skin getting better and half the day with my skin getting worse. Mm-hmm. It was getting a tiny bit better each day, but I basically felt like I was spending half the day just I couldn't wait to take the turbinafin the next day. Mm-hmm. But the real problem was that there were little things that could ruin my progress on it. So like I started trying out uh, different vitamin supplements and stuff like that, and some of the B vitamins made it dramatically worse. And people were talking about potato starch being good for the microbiome. So I was like, let me try some potato starch. And I didn't. It made it dramatically worse. Um, that makes sense when there's a fungal imbalance um, yeah. when you take a prebiotic too soon. So I just want to mention that as well. So wait a second. I want to finish this out with the vitamin A thing. So because of that, I just completely stopped taking any nutrient supplements. I was just scared to death that I was going to take mm. something worse. And because of being paranoid about that, I think I, you know, caused some other problems long term. I actually got a different doctor to extend the dose from two weeks to six weeks because the dermatologist wouldn't. And after that, all that did was get it to a point that was like manageable instead of like voraciously trying to take over my body. It was just kind of sitting there. I was not able to get rid of it until I basically implemented three things. One was I started supplementing with vitamin A, 10,000 IU a day. A second was I started drinking a half a shot of vodka a day on the theory that this would increase the activation of vitamin A for reasons that I I won't explain unless you want me to. (laughs) I think you're going to have to explain it. And then... (laughs) Well, okay. So ethanol, the alcohol that you get drunk from, and vitamin A share many of the same enzymes in their metabolism. And if you drink alcohol, your body makes more of that enzyme to try to clear the alcohol. Mm. And in doing so, that enzyme also happens to activate vitamin A. So like you can actually- It's a gutsy mood there, Chris. (laughs) What's that? It was a gutsy move. I'm going to (laughs) try How much? Well, it was a half a drink a day. Oh, yeah. I clearly, like through experimentation, I found that one drink a day, I started to lose the benefit. And if I would have three or four drinks, it would completely destroy any progress that I had. So it was very much a low dose, like sub. Yeah, if it's therapeutic. (laughs) You can call vodka therapeutic. (laughs) No one goes out for drinks and has half a shot. (laughs) And it's like, that was fun. (laughs) Yeah. So it was very, it was medical dose vodka. So anyway, so there was that. And then I started going tanning. And so phototherapy, I think, is uh, 70% of eczema responds very well to phototherapy. Yeah. But also, you know, fungi generally are destroyed by ultraviolet light. So it was really those three things that kind of rounded out everything. I love that you talked about the external. You know, you keep on saying something that I want to emphasize is that eczema typically isn't one thing. (laughs) There might be like a priority piece, but there's usually a few things. And the annoying part is that there is an internal and external part. So traditionally, we think of eczema in a traditional sense, as you were saying, as kind of being this staph aureus overgrowth on the skin. Or we see that as a key component in a lot of eczema. But sometimes it's something else on the inside, like some people have skin manifestations for fatty acid deficiencies, right? And Chris is over here like really dialing into fungus in a way 
that's a little different than some people. I mean, I'm a big fan of antifungals for sure, but he's dialing into it and no one has ever said I had an ounce of vodka to help clear a fungal infection. So this is kind of fun. So, and I think we also need to talk about dosages of vitamin A because if someone didn't know, you did mention taking 100,000 IUs of vitamin A, which is a buttload. That is a lot of vitamin A. I mean, 10,000 IUs, to my knowledge, when the Mayo Clinic is supplementing in the thousands of vitamin A. They are checking liver enzymes for just in the thousands, you know, and you're over here. That's, 10, that's, that's, that's completely paranoid and doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I won't say that, Well, I should back yeah, off that. Does it yeah. not make any sense? I just want to mention that like, it's, the, it would be a lot of vitamin A, right? Like so if someone's like, oh, I'm going to go take some vitamin A. What you were taking was a lot. How did you arrive at 100,000 units for a week? And then did you arrive oh, at 10,000? Wait, are you, are you talking about my recent time or my time many years ago where I was sure. using 100,000? Sure. You said, okay. you said so that, I did. That, I think it was your scalp. So it was probably a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Okay. That one, that was very high dose. So 100,000 IU of vitamin A is very high dose. Yeah. More recently, I was using 10,000, which mm-hmm. I think is um, more than is the average daily requirement, but it's not that high. Right. Yeah, I think it is wise to be checking safety measures on someone who's taking 100,000 IU of vitamin A per day. I think it's a little paranoid if it's short-term use of 10,000 IU yeah, totally. vitamin A per day. Can we talk I, about vitamin A like largely in terms of skin? Like, Can we get into nutrients for skin? So can we talk about uh, vitamin yeah, A a little bit? Yeah, yeah we can. I want to go back to something that you said, though, about fatty acids, and I, I want to make a point here. So this might be less heterogeneous than people are thinking Because yes, there are people who have deficiencies of synthesizing essential fatty acids that result in eczema. So the eczema from essential fatty acid deficiency results from a deficiency of prostaglandin E2, which is needed to regulate the expression of the genes that code for tight junctions and gap junctions that make up the skin barrier. So I think that if you looked at this from the perspective of what proportion of eczema is driven by a defective skin barrier, then I think it's going to come out looking less heterogeneous and it will probably mostly be driven by deficient prostaglandin E2. If you're looking at it from a more like ultimate cause perspective, like what ultimately led you to not have enough prostaglandin E2, I think it will be very heterogeneous. Whereas if you're looking at it from a more proximately mechanistic point, meaning more direct to the actual cause of like the step right before the defective skin barrier, my suspicion is you're going to find it much less variable that in general, the skin barrier is defective and it's from deficient prostaglandin E2. And to just to give you a very underappreciated point about how it can seem a lot more variable when you look at the ultimate cause. So if you look at riboflavin deficiency, biotin deficiency, B6 deficiency, and essential fatty acid deficiency, this is four deficiencies, right? They have very similar skin manifestations they're not exactly the same, but you can tease out a huge component of them that is remarkably similar. In fact, the cutaneous manifestations of riboflavin and vitamin B6 deficiency are identical. And there's just not that as many descriptions of them in B6 deficiency. And the textbooks tend to gloss over it by just saying B6 deficiency results in skin manifestations that look like riboflavin deficiency. Well, why is that? Riboflavin is needed to derive the vitamin B6 found in plant foods and activate it into the form that we need in our bodies. And vitamin B6 and biotin are both needed to convert the 
linoleic acid, omega-6 fatty acid found in plant oils, into the arachidonic acid, which is most abundant in liver and egg yolks, mm. that we need in our bodies. And the arachidonic acid is the precursor to the prostaglandin E2 that makes the tight junctions and gap junctions that make the skin barrier. And so I think actually there's an overwhelming component of all four deficiencies that are the exact same thing that are the basic defect in that eczema that is characterized by a defective skin barrier and staphylococcus aureus infection. And it's been documented in at least riboflavin, B6, and biotin deficiencies that if you culture the lesion, it's infected with candida. <laughs> so fungal overgrowth in the lesions is also a characteristic shared across these. And typically, so the fungal and bacterial overgrowth will create some issues with just B-complex absorption, typically. like Those two things go together very commonly because other organisms need to eat skin or do you mean in the gut? Oh, I mean in the gut. You're talking about on the skin. I think they're, if they're overgrowing in the gut, for sure. And the thing is, like, if this is systemic... Yeah, I don't think they're. I don't think. I don't think they're totally separate. I think what happens in the gut often happens. I mean, I think they are separate, but at the same time, I think your body is interconnected, right? So, so I think. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, ultimately, depends on the cause, right? Like, if for any of these deficiencies, the dietary deficiency, of course, your gut's going to suffer that deficiency as well as your skin. If you know, sometimes it might be like topical insults, where like I do think the hands suffer from being constantly washed. Right. And they might be in a worse position than the gut. But yeah, 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 I agree. I was actually, you had stated that before. And then you were talking about other disturbances to fatty acid status on the skin. And I was thinking just our environment could disrupt what's going yeah. on in our skin as well. So yeah, well, the, I mean, that's a great point to make, especially because the proteins that make the skin waterproof are the same proteins that prevent leaky gut in the gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I want to recap. You were talking about B6 and biotin are needed to convert ALA, plant-based form, to arachidonic acid, which is the precursor to prostaglandin E2, which is... LA, linoleic acid. ALA is the omega-3. Linoleic acid to arachidonic acid. Yeah, yeah. Which then helps with prostaglandin E2. essentially, which helps with tight gap junctions, you know, essentially a good skin and inside barriers, like healthy tissue, essentially. Is that appropriate? You were talking as well about uh, riboflavin and B6 being necessary to convert the B6 and plant foods to P5P, which is the animal form of B6. Do you want to talk about anything else about B6, biotin, any other B vitamins in relationship to skin issues? How about B5? Or pantothenic acid. I really like B5. Yeah, pantothenic acid has been studied mostly in respect to acne. So there's a number of studies using grams of pantothenic acid, which is a massive dose because the uh, average person gets five milligrams. So a gram is a thousand milligrams. So these studies are using several grams per day of pantothenic acid in teenagers combined with uh, dexpanthenol, which is a cream-soluble form of pantothenic acid that is, I've only been able to find it in wound healing creams, but you can get some of them on Amazon if you search for dexpanthenol. But anyway, uh, these were highly successful trials with acne, and that's mainly how it's been studied in that context. B5 is uh, necessary to synthesize fatty acids and all these other components that are going to be parts of healthy skin. Mm -hmm. 
So we're kind of talking about B vitamins. And I think maybe we want to mention, we haven't really talked a ton about doses. You can't overdo really B vitamin doses because your body is going to excrete them. Whereas traditionally, we think we want to pay more attention to our doses of A, D, E, and K, our fat-soluble vitamins, which brings me back to vitamin A. So deficiency in vitamin A (laughs) leaves this opportunity for fungal infections. What else do we want to talk about with vitamin A in relationship to its importance for skin healing before we lay that one to rest? Well, actually, I do want to say that there are some B vitamins that you can overdose on. So riboflavin and pantothenic acid have no known toxicity, but vitamin B6 does have a toxicity syndrome and niacin has some adverse effects Mm -hmm. and its own toxicity syndrome as well. What is the high dose of B6? So the upper limit set by the Institute of Medicine is 100 milligrams based on the fact that they were unable to find any case reports showing toxicity below 500 milligrams a day. And they added a safety factor in case some people are more sensitive. You can find people on the internet that congregate in groups claiming that they suffered neurological problems from like five milligrams. But if that is a reaction, it's exceedingly rare. So I generally think it's safe to supplement with up to 100 milligrams of B6 per day, although I wouldn't go that high unless you need to mm-hmm. Yeah. by you know trial and error. So vitamin A and skin health. Classically, vitamin A deficiency involves hyperkeratosis, and so that's a buildup of keratin in the skin and basically can manifest as things that look like goosebumps or acne, but they're not, and they're actually bumps of skin created by just the buildup of the dead keratinized cells that are usually making up a a very thin layer. But uh, you were saying before about how viewing uh, things outside our body as as indicators of what's going on inside is a perfect example because animal experiments show that actually all the surfaces inside the body do the same thing. (laughs) So you basically get hyperkeratosis in the inner cavities of your body everywhere. And that's functionally very bad too because you wind up wiping out the normal cellular structures there. And so particularly in mucous membranes, it's very harmful because in mucous membranes, you wipe out the mucus producing cells and replace them with dry, dead, keratinized cells. And so that's really bad in the eyes and the throat and things like that. But vitamin A more generally is just a critical part of the immune system. It's needed to support every aspect of the immune system, ranging from antibodies, T cells, to suppressing autoimmune activity. And Its roles in skin health are going to be very diverse and go far beyond the classical hyperkeratosis. It's also going to be protecting against fungal infection, which I think is what was going on with me and what you were saying about the myoclinic use. And it's also going to counteract any autoimmune conditions that might be affecting the skin and so on. And food-based sources of vitamin A include liver and what else? So vitamin A comes in two forms, retinol, which is found in animal foods, and carotenoids, which are found in plant foods. The retinol is what is needed to be in our bodies to prevent vitamin A deficiency. We can convert carotenoids into retinol, and so we get a portion of our vitamin A from plant foods. But the degree to which we were able to do that depends on genetics and many other factors. And so some of us are really bad at getting vitamin A from plant foods. If you're good at getting vitamin A from plant foods, you get them from richly colored red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables. But I like to view getting retinol from animal foods as insurance policy because unless you're doing a lot of testing, you really have no idea whether you're a good converter or a bad converter. And so it's just better to hedge your bets on you might not be a great converter. 
you should get your basic minimal requirement as retinol from animal foods. And so liver and cod liver oil, their best sources, egg yolks and butter fat are also decent sources. Traditionally, it looked like meat wasn't that great of a source, meat besides liver, I mean, although there's some data coming in that we may have underestimated the retinol contents of regular meat. So probably all animal products provide some vitamin A, but egg yolks and butter fat are the main non-liver sources. And then liver and cod liver oil, which just happens to be an extract of a particular liver of a fish, is really the number one source. Mm-hmm. Thank you for mentioning the difference between plant-based and animal-based because I think that's an important distinction that sometimes that doesn't get spoke to as much. And actually, I'm over here going through my mental filing cabinet thinking about my like extreme fungal cases, like those that are exposed to mold. And I'm going to go back and look at all their vitamin A. <laughs> Yeah. Because actually in my brain, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can remember that person having really low vitamin A and that person having really low vitamin A. It's just fun. I, I love looking at nutrient patterns anyway. And I was thinking about different reasons vitamin A was low, but I just, it'll be fun to go back and be like, oh, yep, consistent in XYZ case. So, all right. Any other vitamins that you want to talk about related to skin? We've talked about Bs and A. Anything else? Yeah. So, zinc is particularly important to skin health, the earliest cases of zinc deficiency or the most sensitive indicator of marginal zinc deficiency tends to be patches of dry skin. And as zinc deficiency gets worse, those generally can turn into ugly pustules in some people or acne in others. And you could make a pretty good case that acne as it generally appears in the population would respond well in many cases to improvements in zinc status. Which is very commonly low, at least in the people I speak to. I see it be depressed in a lot of gut health cases. So I'll just mention that. Yeah. Yeah. I think inadequate zinc is very common. And then there's a couple other minerals that cause skin problems. So manganese deficiency causes a particular form of dermatitis that looks like tiny bubbles on the skin from blocked sweat glands. I suspect that that level of manganese deficiency is not very common. And actually, it's in response to manganese deficiency, that's only been observed in where they experimentally depleted people of manganese. And then... What's that called? uh, It's called miliera crystallina. And that's a broader condition that isn't exclusively tied to manganese deficiency. But when they experimentally deplete people of manganese, it happens. Mm -hmm. It can, but is not necessarily be a result of manganese deficiency. And then depending on the nature of the skin problem, I think sometimes skin problems can be driven by sulfites. In some people, sulfite causes allergy-like reactions that are probably a result of histamine release, but they're not in response to a specific antigen. So that can lead to just classic allergy symptoms like dermatitis, hives, flushing, and things like that. And those things are chronic and they seem allergy-like, but it seems like you have them all the time instead of in response to specific foods that it could be driven by something increasing just systemic histamine as an example. And sulfite could be one of those things. Molybdenum is a mineral that's necessary to clear sulfite. I think more people are familiar with sulfite as a food additive. And a lot of, you know, wine, generally people who know about sulfites are looking for sulfite-free wine. It's also added to a lot of other processed foods. There's high amounts in dried fruit, for example, but also a lot of cosmetics and medical products have sulfite additives. But sulfite's also generated 
inside our bodies during normal metabolism of protein. And so you might not be consuming sulfites as food additives and you might still have a sulfite problem. And then, of course, if histamine levels are systemically elevated, that's kind of a, opens up a whole can of worms of other nutrients that could be involved in histamine metabolism, well, especially I, vitamins. I want to ask you about molybdenum because I want to talk about dosage when playing with this and testing. Some people just recommend, hey, if I feel like I have issues with wine in general, then you can just trial some molybdenum, right? But let's talk about that a little bit more. Is there someone that offers molybdenum testing? Yeah, there's a company, HDRI, that offers serum or whole blood molybdenum. This company is a little frustrating to work with because they tend to not have very good customer service. And because they're a small lab, unlike the big ones like LabCorp and Quest, they tend to get back to you after quite a while of waiting. But they do offer tests for molybdenum. And then there's some other testing that I have in the cheat sheet where you can like indirectly look at molybdenum status. But to be honest, I'm not too worried about testing in most cases because there is not really any demonstrated harm to supplementing with modestly high doses of molybdenum. And so if someone's going to take like 150 micrograms or even 500 micrograms a day of molybdenum for a couple of weeks and see if their issue responds to it, I don't think that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can get results faster that way doing that. Another thing is to just look at your diet. So if you're not eating legumes, which are like lentils, peas, and beans, and if you're not eating liver, then you're probably not getting enough molybdenum. On top of that, if you're eating a lot of animal protein, you're probably increasing your needs for molybdenum. If you're on birth control, you're probably increasing your needs for molybdenum. If you're on hormone replacement therapy, you're probably increasing your needs for molybdenum. If you're consuming sulfites, you're probably increasing your needs for molybdenum. And so those are patterns that are fairly easy to deduce. Cool. All right. So we've talked about molybdenum. We've talked about assortment of B vitamins. We've talked about vitamin A. We've talked about zinc, which is common. Do we want to talk about vitamin D or any or choline or anything else? Yeah, vitamin D is important for protecting against psoriasis, although I think that phototherapy and sunlight are broader in their effects than just generating vitamin D. And there's actually uh, vitamin D metabolites generated by degradation of vitamin D in the skin by ultraviolet light that are very important to protecting against psoriasis. So I think that makes a better case for getting sunlight and or phototherapy than it does for taking vitamin D. What was the other, other one you mentioned? Choline. Oh, choline. What have you seen tying choline to skin health? I've just seen choline being good for skin, liver, brain health. And I would say, and also choline helps clear histamine. So sometimes histamine is going to create skin issues as you were just talking about. So I've seen it be really useful, actually. Oh, interesting. Through methylation? You think about the mechanisms all the time. I think about like, oh, oh yeah, this works for <laughs> this and I see it work. <laughs> so I just know uh, choline, choline has worked very nicely. I like phosphatidylcholine. Some of my colleagues like yeah. choline by tartrate. I like phosphatidylcholine. There's some stuff out there about choline being useful when there's fungal and mold overgrowth as well. So I'll use high doses sometimes in that case. But personally, oh, skin interesting. I didn't, with I didn't know about that. Yeah, I used to use choline all the time in kiddos and it seemed to be really effective. I mean, sometimes I'll like use something for a while and then I'll try to limit the amount of stuff I'm using and then stop using it, you know. So I used to use it a lot. It felt like it worked really well. I'm also a little bit of a guinea pig. I like it quite a bit when I'm thinking about like, I think it just is really nice even in like dry skin. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. So 
I think you can go talk forever about a lot of topics, right? I mean, it's just hard. It's hard. <laughs> and we kind of like to, to riff on a few things. I think we also talked about largely food-based sources for a lot of things as well. So I think we pretty much covered that. Are there any other nutrients that you think, hey, I've got a skin thing. What else do I want to look at? I mean, I think also it would be a good place to mention, is there anything that you think should be tested before you experiment? Well, that's a big question. That is a big question. We don't have to answer that one because that's, um, that's uh, a lot of nutrients. Yeah. I mean, it's a very case-by-case basis. So like some of these nutrients have toxicity syndromes and some don't. Mm-hmm. And of the ones that we mentioned, probably the ones that are most important to do testing around would be vitamin A, vitamin D. What else did we talk about? We talked uh, about the vitamins the, and zinc largely. Yeah. The, I'd love to know. Vitamins A and D are probably the most important to do testing around zinc, B6, and niacin. We didn't really talk about niacin, but niacin is one of the B vitamins that does have skin-related issues. But those are the other ones that do have some degree of safety issues that I would recommend testing around. But I don't think any of these really absolutely require testing before experimenting it just depends what kind of experiment you're going to run. Mm-hmm. you know. So I think a lot of these have very safe doses that could be experimented with without testing. But certainly if you're going to do something like 100,000 IU of vitamin A per day for that weeks. That should maybe be validated. Then, yeah, that's something you want to do testing around because the dose is so high. Yeah, very high. And I will say I'm a fan of testing, but like you said, sometimes it's not always necessary and it doesn't hurt to experiment with something first. So it kind of depends on how severe the case is, what you're looking for specifically. If you've already tried things and you're not having success, then it's maybe a good time to get some data to help guide future decisions as well. Yeah, I think testing comes into play as most important when either the result of the test is going to make the difference between an action that you would carry out that is just either the action may or may not be safe depending on the result of the test Or you might take an action in two completely different directions depending on the test. And then the other place where testing is really valuable is if you're doing some kind of screening test and you're testing things that aren't you don't necessarily have a hypothesis around, you might uncover information that was outside the box that you were thinking within. Sometimes like, you know, even someone who's great at coming up at hypotheses, like I'm pretty good at figuring things out, but I might run a big lab panel that turns up something that I wasn't thinking about. So I might have had seven hypotheses about what was going on, but the lab test turned up something that was totally different. And, you know, it's like if you're going to experiment with something, you're going to get faster results if you just do the experiment because the lab testing takes time. But if your lab testing is broad enough to catch things that you're not thinking about, then you might find something because the lab picked it up months before you would ever think of trying it. So yeah. yeah, there's a case for both and combining both is a great plan. So Chris, you've got a book coming out and tell us about it. Yeah, it's called Vitamins and Minerals 101, How to Get the Nutrients You Need on Any Diet. And this book is basically, I would describe it as light, fun and entertaining, but also very practical, very educational and potentially transformational. So It really is like this book is for people who are curious enough about nutrition to want to learn and understand what vitamin A is, what vitamin D is, what zinc is, things like that. So it's definitely not for people who just want quick fixes to something. Like it's not for the person who says like, 
oh, my skin is bothering me. What do I do about it? And yet it is very practical. So there's a chapter on each nutrient that walks you through what is that nutrient? What does it do? Why is it important? How much do you need? How do you get what you need from food? And when should you think about supplementing? When might you think about whether you have too much or how to know whether you don't have enough and things like that? So if you're curious about the nutrients enough to want to learn about each one, then this is definitely a book that you would like. And it kind of ties everything together at the end by giving real practical advice about what to eat if you were trying to get all your nutrients from food, but then also breaks it down for people in different diets. You know, I talked earlier about my bad experience with veganism. This book doesn't take a position on veganism or paleo or keto or whatever, but it does bring those up as a matter of saying, what are the nutrients that you might have to think a bit more about if you're on a vegan diet or if you're on a carnivore diet or if you're on a keto diet or you're on a paleo diet and how would you design the diet differently to meet all your nutritional needs if you're doing any of those and that's why the subtitle is how to get all the nutrients you need on any diet yeah i love that that you added that subtitle i think it's like a real problem solver and it now becomes applicable to many people it's like oh that's a good point because there are many types of eating that they may be a little insufficient in one thing. And obviously, you've clearly thought through that. Chris, where can people find you online? And where can people pre-order the book or order the book? Yeah, you can find me at chrismasterjohnphd.com. And if you just click on book from the menu, you can pre-order or order the book. Awesome. Thank you. Will it be on Amazon when this comes out? Or will it still be on chrismasterjohnphd.com? Or don't you know yet? It will be on Amazon and this will come out around the time it will probably be available on Amazon. Cool. Great. Thanks so much for coming on today and riffing about skin nutrients and conditions with me. Thank you for having me on. It was great. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 